0: Um, if you have been with us from the beginning of the Women's Bible Studies, believe it or not, this will be our 12th book. Is that right? Uh, yes, I counted today. Well, 12th book, if we count just part of John, which Shaney did last, um, last spring. So very excited to get back So let me pray, and we'll get started. If you don't have a notebook, make sure you get one. Um, My notes really go along with the lecture, so make sure you have that so that you can write on it as we go through the lesson. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name, and Lord, we are so thankful and grateful to be here tonight. God, I thank you for this opportunity to open your word and to study it with these women. God, I thank you for these women who are doing this tonight, (laughs) who chose to come and study your word over a million other things that they could be doing. Lord, I just ask that you bless that, bless them for that. And Lord, bless them by opening their eyes and their ears to things in your word that maybe they haven't seen before, by understanding In this first lesson, a little bit more about the Bible itself and how it works together and what what are these letters, these epistles all about. God, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you that the God of the universe, the creator of all, chose to communicate with us And we have that communication right here in front of us. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that we live in a country where we can freely open it. We can meet publicly to read it and study it. Lord, don't ever let us take that for granted. We thank you and praise you for all of this. In the precious and powerful name of Jesus, amen. Okay, well, as I said, tonight, we're starting our fall study. We'll be doing three books, the three letters of John. And I wanted to start how we always start. And again, if you've been in classes before, this should look very familiar to you. But it's always a good idea whenever we start a particular book just to be reminded of the Bible in general, how it goes together, how it all works. Because we know that what we call our Bible is actually a collection of 66 different pieces of writing, which all come together to tell one story. These 66 books are divided into two testaments, the old and the new. And even that word testament in the Greek, diatheke, means a covenant. So we're really looking at these two pieces of work here, the two covenants. So these different books cover different portions of history, Genesis, all the way eternity past, and Revelation takes us to eternity future, it literally covers everything. Every epic of time is covered within the pages of this book. We know it covers a myriad of topics that touch us in all aspects of life. These books were all written in different types of writing or genres. And we know in order to really understand what each book has for us, we need to understand that we read different genres differently. So we have the law, um, these first five books, which is called the Torah or the Pentateuch. We have history, mainly dealing with the history of Israel We have poetry. Have you ever thought that it was God himself who created poetry? Right here in the Word. We have the major prophets and the minor prophets rounding out the Old Testament. Um, In the New Testament, we have, again, lots of history, the epistles, and rounding out with the book of Revelation, which is, of course, prophecy. So we want to see these different genres and understand a little bit more of how to read them to really get out what the author has for us in each book. So we know that each one of these separate pieces of writing was written by God himself. In second Timothy, it tells us that all scripture is God breathed. It was all under the influence of the Holy spirit But we also know that God chose specific people to actually pen these pieces of writing. And because of that, they're not only the words of God, but in these books, we can learn about the writing itself by knowing a little bit about each of the authors. So tonight, we're going to be talking about the books in the New Testament, And we're going to be talking a little bit about John as well, since he is the author of all of our books for this study. These 40 different authors came from all different walks of life. Some were kings. We have prophets. We have fishermen, like our author here, John. And they were written over a time span of over 1,500 years. And if you really let that sink in, you will get an appreciation for the Bible that you've never had before. Over 1,500 years of pieces of writing written by 40 different people, and they all tell one story, nothing contradicts. No author contradicts another It would be impossible if God himself had not written it. And that's one of the ways we know that this is divinely authored by God himself. So the order and the placement of the books was also divinely inspired. They're not actually in sequential order of how the things happened, but they are in the perfect order for God to communicate exactly what he wants to communicate to us. And we talked a lot about that in the Jude class with the placement of different books and why they are placed in, certain, um, in this certain order. So understanding what we have in front of us is the greatest thing we can possibly do as believers. This is God's communication To us, and we need to give it the time that it deserves to truly understand it. So, tonight we're going to start a little differently and go into a little more detail of our New Testament books. So, we're going to do a brief, what is called a New Testament survey. And a survey is simply an overview of it or a general summary. And we're going to look at each of the books as opposed to tonight. We're not going to go in-depth into any of the letters yet. That is going to start next week. So tonight we're going to have an overview. And then next week we'll do what we normally do, which is the expository line by line, sometimes word by word of each verse in these three letters because they are small, but they are power-packed. I think you might be amazed at what all comes out of these three letters. So let's look for a moment at the New Testament in general and see what we can glean here. So since we began our study, believe it or not, again, I counted today, I think we've done 12 books And what we want to do, ladies, it's really important as we go in depth into various books of the Bible that we are constantly not only going in depth here, but seeing how everything works together. I would highly suggest that everyone have a pattern in their daily life or at least weekly of reading, reading large passages of the word and then being involved in the study of a particular book or passage, a small piece. We have to have both. Have you ever heard the saying, you can't see the forest for the trees? Yes. And what that means is sometimes you can be, so close to something, you can be so close to a tree that you, don't, you lose the picture of the entire forest, and that can be true, and I know that's typically what we do in this class. Man, we, we are right up against these trees. We are going line by line in each of these books, digging out everything we can dig out. We also sometimes need to step back and remember the full picture, the full story, and just a thought that I had as I was getting ready for this particular class, like when I was so focused on Jude, which we spent a lot of weeks in that little book, so focused on that, I saw apostasy everywhere. That, that was really my life for those, whatever that was, 12 weeks or so. That is what I saw everywhere was apostasy. So, Is it important to understand apostasy and get the warning of it? Absolutely. So we need to dig deep into that book. But we can't just stay right there. We have to step back and see the entire picture of God's redemptive plan. So as we're looking at this tonight, um, we know that the New Testament and this Um, icon here is great at dividing this the way it is divided by genres. We have four sections in our New Testament, but three genres. We're going to go through each of these to get a little understanding of what we have going on here. So the New Testament, four distinct sections. We have the gospel, and then we have the book of Acts. We have the letters And then we have the book of Revelation. So in these four sections, it's made up of three different genres of writing. The Gospels and Acts are actually all historical pieces. Everything in the middle here, again, these epistles were letters and we're going to talk about why all this writing was in letter form. And then the final is prophecy. Now, John is the only New Testament author who writes, writing in all three of the different genres. He's got a historical piece, his gospel, wrote three epistles, and of course wrote the book of Revelation. So the only New Testament author that does that. We're gonna, I know we've gone, gone over John so many times, but he is so special And we're going to hear some other things about him tonight as we go. So in looking at the Gospels, which makes up the first section of the New Testament, this word gospel is in Greek, euangelion, and it means good tidings, good tidings. And again, though we call them the Gospels, they're actually um, historical pieces, so these four books tell the history of Jesus's time on the earth by four different authors who were alive at the time. They all either knew Jesus personally, were eyewitnesses to the things that they wrote about, or they interviewed eyewitnesses. That's important because that's the case with Luke. Luke was one who gathered eyewitness testimony to write his gospel. He was not an eyewitness himself, but one of the most detailed of all the writers. That's interesting. And we need to know that when these gospels were being written, some later than others, what was happening is the eyewitnesses to these events were starting to die off. So they needed to record all the th- there were so many eyewitnesses to the events of Jesus, so many. So at the time that some of these were being written, the people didn't need to read the gospel. they they knew it, they had experienced this, it was right around them. So think about ladies, these gospels are for the later generations. these these were written for us that we might know. Thank God they did this. Thank God they wrote these things. So, four different authors. They really record from their own perspectives, and we're going to talk about that, but they're all cohesive. They all go together. Um, they give us a picture of Jesus' ancestry, his life events, his relationships, his teachings his words, his actions, his death, his resurrection. This history demonstrates that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Um, Augustine once said, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the new is concealed. And in the The New Testament, the Old, is revealed. So in these Gospels, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're actually referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. And that word means to be seen together. And the reason is, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell a lot of the same events, sometimes they use the same words, oftentimes the same sequence. They really go hand in hand. So that's why they're termed the synoptic gospels. The gospel of John is very different. His writing style in general is very different. And we will really see that in the first letter of John. But he's got a whole different style. I'm not gonna go much into that because if you don't know already, Pastor Tim is going to be starting um, Sunday mornings on the Gospel of John. So this was not planned together, but I think it might have been planned together. I think it's really cool when things like that happen. Um, So you should be hearing a lot of things that really connect between your Wednesday nights and your Sunday mornings. So the four books, I'm on the next page now, these four accounts do not give us a complete account of everything that happened. They are selective rather than exhaustive, meaning the Holy Spirit gives us as the reader exactly what we need to know Jesus is who he says he is. And John finishes his gospel. In fact, everybody turn there. Look at the last verse of the last gospel to show that these are selective, but not exhaustive. So the last verse of the gospel of John, can I have a volunteer to read that really loud so we can all hear it? Okay. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Can you even imagine that? The whole world could not contain the books of what Jesus did and has done. That is absolutely amazing. But even in light of that, we have enough. We have what we need. We have the full counsel of God here, as Paul calls it, to know what we need to know, to believe and to live out our lives as believers. So on your or in your notes there, I've got a chart for you because it can help us To understand as you're reading through the different Gospels, it can help you to understand what you're reading. When you have a little background, when you kind of take an overview and compare and contrast the four different pieces, again, all written by different people, um, actually to different audiences. But of course, we know the audience is also who. All all of us, all of us. So Matthew, we know that Matthew was a Jew. He was a tax collector. He was well-educated, politically astute. He was one of the actual 12 disciples. He was a Jew writing to Jews. His purpose was to try to get the Jewish people to see This is the Messiah you've been waiting for. The one I'm writing about, this is him. This is who you've been looking for. Because of that, he presents Jesus throughout his gospel as the Messiah. He starts with a genealogy and he goes through the genealogy of Jesus as a king from Abraham through to David and then, um, of course, being in the line of Judah, it is to show Jesus as the rightful king. He highlights in his gospel Jesus' credentials, and he focuses on Jesus' words. There's more parables in Matthew than any of the other gospels. In Matthew, we get the Sermon on the Mount. We get the Lord's Prayer. We get many of his teachings Many, many actual words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. It begins with Jesus' birth and concludes with the resurrection. And if we had to put a challenge to each one of these Gospels, we could say with Matthew, the real challenge is submit to Christ as Lord. He is the King. Submit to Him. Do so now. Do so now. Willingly. Um, Next, we have Mark. Mark was also a Jew. He's referred to in the book of Acts as John Mark. He was not a disciple, Um, it was actually his mother who was an early follower of Christ. Um, Mark was a very young man. He ended up being a companion to Peter as Peter traveled and spread the gospel. Um, his audience was actually to the Gentiles, most specifically to the Romans. And if you're thinking about the Romans, they, they were people of power. They were people who got things done. And Mark presents Jesus as a servant, one who was doing things. Instead of his words, Mark focuses more on his power. He doesn't have a genealogy. Because lots of times, genealogies of servants, they weren't even recorded. So everything in these Gospels really goes together for an overall message. Again, he focuses on what Jesus did. He starts with his baptism, ends with the ascension. And again, if we wanted to tie a challenge to this, it would be serve as Christ served. Serve as he served. Next, we have Luke. Luke is also a Gentile. He was a physician. He traveled with Paul. He, he did not know Jesus. He learned from Paul. He was a disciple of the Apostle Paul, um, but still wrote with great historical detail, because, again, of all the eyewitness reports that he collected and the people that he interviewed. He presents Jesus throughout as a man, and his genealogy follows, goes all the way back to Adam, the first man, and is showing Jesus as the second and final Adam. Jesus was fully man, and we have to understand that in order to understand um, the Bible itself fully man. Luke focuses on his nature and how he felt. A good chunk of his gospel actually is centered on the Passion Week. He has a lot about that one particular week in Jesus' life. He can uh, begins his book with Jesus' birth. And ends with the promise of the Holy Spirit, which, how interesting, sets Luke right up for his next book, which is the book of Acts. So here, the Holy Spirit is promised. And then in the book, we see the coming of the Holy Spirit on the church. A lesson or a challenge overall through the book of Luke would be following his footsteps following Jesus' footsteps. Um, In fact, one verse that I wrote just today, it says, um, where did I put this? Oh, where Jesus just says, go and do likewise. He's saying, you see me now, you go, you do likewise. And then, of course, the fourth is John. John himself was also a Jew. He was a fisherman. One of the 12 disciples, but not only that, he was one of the three in the innermost circles of Jesus. We have Peter, James, and John together. They saw things and witnessed things that many of the other disciples did not see or witness. John was special to Jesus. (laughs) And... That's almost hard to imagine being one of the three closest people to Jesus. And we have letters that he wrote. Oh, my gosh. If anybody in this room just said that they spent several years with Jesus, would you not want to read their letters? Maybe get a look into their diary. I mean, that that is amazing. This is the writing. This is who we're dealing with. Um in these writings, one of the three closest people to Jesus. He is writing um, his gospel actually to the church, to believers, and he presents Jesus as God. Oh, what a compliment. Luke presenting him as man, John presenting him as God, because we know he is fully both. Fully God, fully man. Many people say that John does not have a genealogy, but it actually does. It just starts with God and his preexistence. He is the preexistent one. Um, So, of course, John's gospel is focusing on his godship, who Jesus is. His gospel starts in eternity past, (laughs) That's a, a long time ago. And it finishes with the promise of his return, which sets him up for another piece of his writing, Revelation. Just seeing how this book forms together and goes together and how it works together is absolutely amazing. And the challenge from John is always believe in him. He is who he says he is. Believe. So this rounds out the first section of the New Testament. I know that was very quick. Um, There's so much more. There could be 20 other things on this chart. So um, do a little digging on your own. Find some other um, ways that these Gospels are similar and how they're different. And once you do that you will really glean even more as you read them on your own. So the second portion of writing in the New Testament is, of course, the book of Acts. And this book is church history. Now in this, like the Gospels, it is historical narrative, But instead of focusing on Jesus and his time on the earth, this takes the time period from the ascension of Jesus to the end of Paul's ministry right before he is martyred. Now, in the book of Acts, we get the history of the church, the actual birthday of the church, which is the day of Pentecost, we see the actions, the sermons, the teachings, and the travels of the early apostles as they begin to take the gospel into the world and spread it. Now, we learn much from even the title of this book, Acts. That word, Acts, in Greek is "praxis," and it means actions or deeds. This word was often used to describe the achievements of great people. And as you read the book of Acts, you will see some pretty phenomenal people, (laughs) Um, mainly Peter and Paul. Takes us through their life almost with Paul like we are traveling with him throughout this book. Now, the book of Acts can be divided into three sections itself. And we've seen this map before in a different class, but I wanted to put it in here for you as well for this to really see how Acts can be divided because the first portion of Acts, which is Acts 1 through Acts 8, this is really the witness of the gospel in Jerusalem. This is where it all started. So Acts begins strictly in Jerusalem. But then... As the book goes, it's because the gospel is being spread further. And the second section of Acts deals with the spreading of the gospel to Judea and Samaria. In this section is where we get the conversion of Paul. We see the beginning of the, or not really the beginning, it's been happening, but persecution of the church and things like that in this second section. So this would be chapters 8 through 12. And then the third section is what Acts calls the witness to the ends of the earth. Now, of course, they did not go all over the world, but if you think of the time period and how travel was at this point in history, and you look at what they did, it is absolutely amazing. Paul, on his missionary journeys, his three journeys, all throughout and ending in Rome, where he witnesses and shares the gospel until his death. What what an incredible, incredible story. What I want you to see tonight is that these first two sections, the gospel and the book of Acts, set the foundation for the entire rest of the New Testament because, because these things happened <laughs> because everything that was written in the Gospels is true. It really happened. Jesus coming to the earth, doing what he did, the miracles that he did, dying on a cross, um, raising from the dead, over 500 people seeing him after he was raised, ascending into heaven. All these things really happened. Because of this, the God of the universe choosing to indwell in the life of the believer. That is amazing. He lives in us, fallen, sinful people, and He resides in us. And we see that in Acts, and we see what happens when the Holy Spirit indwells with people and what those people can do. Because this happened, now we have this. The four Gospels and the book of Acts is what is called descriptive writing. It means it is describing for us things that happened. These four books tell us what happened. When we move into the next portion of Scripture, we're going to see that the focus changes a bit. So this descriptive writing, it is telling us what happened. And now we go in to the third portion of the New Testament, which are the epistles. And again, because all of this happened, now we have pieces of writing that are going to show us what do we do with this? I believe this, but what do I do now? I believe that happened. I believe the Holy Spirit lives in me. But my gosh, what do I do with that? Can you imagine if we only had the Gospels? How would I know how to live? Oh, my gosh, you all, these cover everything. How how should my relationship with my husband look with my kids? How do do I work in a place full of non-Christians? How do I spend my money? How do I spend my time? What's a good habit? What's a bad habit? What's even evil and what's even good? How do I know the difference? Can I know that I'm saved? Yes. Because the epistles tell us all of that. Oh, you all, this is so amazing. This, all of these epistles is what we call prescriptive writing. And it means, I know I'm kind of jumping all over the place. I'll get back to this page, but just know prescriptive writing is writing that describes something that should happen. This happened. This happened. This is all true. So now this is what should happen because of that. So let's look a bit at these epistles. So the third section of writing in the New Testament are called epistles, And an epistle is simply a composition in the form of a letter. Of course, this was the only way, other than verbal, of communication in this day. That would be all they had, really, um, to communicate with each other was actual letters. So these are called the letters or the epistles. And don't let that name fool you. Many of the epistles will look like letters like what we're used to. Dear so-and-so, this is to so-and-so. Some of the letters won't. They won't have that clear letter form as we know a letter. We're going to see that again in 1 John. It doesn't follow the rules of what we would call a letter, but it is still a piece of writing, writing written to be sent and read by a particular person or a particular congregation. So that's what these epistles are. Now, these epistles, um, they make up the majority of the New Testament books. 21 out of 27 books are this form of writing. These pieces were written by a handful of disciples, apostles, or leaders of the early church, to the church to explain doctrine and give instruction for living. Because remember, at this time in history, when these epistles were being written and circulated, the church was brand new. It was just getting started. So the people who had actually been with Jesus and learned from Jesus are now writing letters to other believers saying, okay, this is what this means. This is how you live out the gospel that you profess to be true. So again, they deal with doctrine and they deal with living. What do we need to understand and believe as a Christian? And then how do we live it out? this is what the apostle or the epistles do for us. So these writings, I know you have a church timeline that might be in your binder already. And I know we give this out every class uh, because it's so important to see how all of this comes together. But for this slide, I just took out only the pieces of New Testament writings so you can see when they were written. Now, these dates, we can't be dogmatic about the dates because we can't say for sure some of these dates, but we can be pretty sure it was around these specific times. Um, What I want you to really see here is the first piece of writing that was written, that became the New Testament was actually the epistle of James. And it was written sometime around 44. So that is the first book of the New Testament. And the last book, again, even in John's writing, some people believe he might have written his gospel after the revelation. Again, we don't know for sure, but um, it, all of his writing was toward the end of his life. But if you think about, 44 to 94 to 96, that's not very long, you all. All New Testament writing was written in a very short time frame. The writers of these books were close to these events. They were close to Jesus himself were his first disciples and apostles. This isn't someone writing a hundred years later based on someone else's writings. This is very important because a lot of times people always wonder, well, why were these books chosen? I've heard about this book in another Bible and you know this, this piece of writing that isn't considered canon. Why is that? A lot of the reason for that is it's not written close to the time. This is very important. We get all of our books here within a span of approximately 50 years or so. So um, all of these are very close to the actual events. So these letters written by these people, and I have on your chart here, you can see the Gospels are in yellow, No, I'm sorry, the Gospels are in blue when those are written. The Epistles are in yellow. Acts is all by itself. And then, of course, Revelation is by itself. But this is what makes up the entire New Testament that we have. So in the Epistles, if we look strictly at the Epistles, we know the first section is called the Pauline epistles. This would be Romans through Philemon. I really wish I would have put this one picture. Thank you, Shaney. Thank you. Um, so, Romans through Philemon, these are called the Pauline epistles, all written by the Apostle Paul. Um, These are letters to specific churches or individuals, and they lay out official Christian doctrine and beliefs and practices that should follow it. One of the greatest works of doctrine is the book of Romans. Um, If you read that and get that, you have a great understanding of the Christian doctrine. The second set of epistles from Hebrews to um, Jude. These are called the general epistles. These are written by other people. Of course, we know that there is some debate on who wrote Hebrews. I know what I believe. Um, I believe it was Paul. But I know a lot of people don't. And again, I can't, can't prove that, but I just feel like there's clues in there that let us know that it was Paul. But um, whether he wrote that one or not, it's considered one of the general epistles. So these were written by other disciples and church leaders, Um, again, to churches or individuals within the church. We know that James wrote one, Peter wrote two, John wrote three, and Jude wrote one. So this rounds out the general epistles. And again, Hebrews isn't listed here because we don't know for sure who the author is. So again, all of these pieces of writing is prescriptive. It is writing that describes something that should happen. So whenever we are reading the Bible, ladies, it is good to ask yourself, is what I'm reading Describing something that happened or instructing me in something that should happen. it, It can change how you see things and how you read things. Now, as a general rule, like I said, these are descriptive and these are prescriptive. But of course, there are exceptions. You all, in the Gospels, we have commands of Jesus instructing us, of course, in Acts. In the um, letters, we have pieces of history, things that happened, because we have to have context for the reading. So it's not this is only this and this is only this, but as a general rule, that's, that's how these writings follow And just ask yourself as you're reading, and it will become pretty clear to you. Is this describing something that happened? Is this instructing me in something that should happen? Because you are going to find the epistles are so unbelievably practical. We hear all the time, what should I be doing? What should I do here? How do I know about this? What about this? (gasps) That's why we have the epistles. It tells us these things. They are so practical. And I think you might be surprised throughout the rest of this course what all, again, we can learn about our own daily lives through these letters. Okay, the fourth, No, before I get to that, um, one last thing that is interesting about John, after Paul with his um, 13 or 14 books in the New Testament, depending on Hebrews, John is the second most prolific author with five books in the New Testament. Again, his gospel, three letters, and Revelation. Revelation, we've already done. We spent about a year in Revelation. Um, his three letters we're getting um, in this class and the gospel you're going to get on Sunday morning. So uh, by this time, maybe by the end of the year, you will have all the books of John under your belt. Um, so the fourth and final section of writing Making up the New Testament is, of course, Revelation. Again, not going to spend a lot of time here because we've already spent a lot of time here. But this is a very different piece of writing from anywhere else in the Bible. Um, We know there are prophets in the Old Testament, of course. Um, Most of the prophecy of John, and it is prophecy. The Bible tells us, it is prophecy. Read this book of prophecy. There's a lot of people that will tell you the book of Revelation is not prophecy. We know that's not true. We learned that. But this book is different even from the other books of prophecy because most of this book focuses on what is yet to come. And in Revela- in this section, I put just a couple verses. From Revelation, just to kind of spark your memory about this book. Because remember, this is the revelation of Jesus. A lot of people think it's a revelation about things that are going to happen and all this stuff that's going to happen. And that book includes that. But it is the revelation of Jesus Christ coming back as rightful king. There should be no book more exciting than that. He's coming back. This book describes how he's coming back and what is going to happen when that happens. So we can almost look at this as past things that happened, things that are going to happen. So again, what's that mean for the epistles? Yeah, oh, ladies, this is how we live now. This is what we're doing now. Um, So understanding how all of the books making up the New Testament, how they kind of go together, how they fit together will help us as we tackle these individual letters one by one. As we go through each of the letters One by one, hopefully by now, each of these um, pieces of writing will spark or something will come to your remembrance from some of the other books that you've studied. This is how this works, ladies. The more you study, the more you'll get from things you've even already studied. I promise you, we could go back and start any of the books we've already done, I don't care if it's Ruth that we started with or Jude or um, John that we just did, we could do that again today and we would get so much more because we have other pieces of writing under our belt and it all connects and it all goes together. So next we are going to look at the Apostle John himself. And again, I know we've gone over John many times. We've done several things from John, but he is such an amazing, amazing person. And we actually have a lot of information on him. So, of course, he was one of the 12 disciples and he is second only to Peter in the amount of times he's mentioned in the Bible. Peter is mentioned 156 times and John 130. Can you imagine even being mentioned once and he's 130? Um, Undoubtedly, I thought it might be fun to kind of use this as a springboard because we have done John so many times and we know a lot about John. I thought we would take, undoubtedly, the most famous work of art depicting all of the disciples together. There's not many um, renderings of everyone together. Of course, this is Leonardo's Da Vinci's The Last Supper. So when we look at this, what's fascinating, and everything I'm about to tell you all, I did not know this until a couple of weeks ago when I started looking into it. But in the 15th century, it was actually common for pictures of the Last Supper. So this isn't the only picture of the Last Supper. There's actually quite a few. Um, They would hang in the refectories of monasteries and convents so that the monks and the nuns could eat in the presence of the Lord at the Last Supper. So in 1498, the Duke of Milan, and I'm not even going to pronounce his name, but it's in your notes, commissioned da Vinci to paint a picture of the Last Supper to hang in a monastery in Milan. So it took da Vinci three years to paint this, and he chose to portray the exact time where Jesus is telling his disciples that one of them will betray him. So the whole idea is to get the reactions of the disciples when they hear this news. Now, for many years, a lot of the disciples, it couldn't be differentiated. Nobody knew who was who. Some, it was clear, but many, it just wasn't. And obviously, in the Bible itself we get a whole lot of information on a few, and there's some that most people, including me, would have a hard time even naming. We just don't have that much on them. But in the 19th century, a notebook of Da Vinci's was discovered that had notes on the painting, so now we can absolutely say who is who. And in the notes, we see he put clues to identify each of the disciples. So, da Vinci chose to paint with all the disciples in groups of three, obviously with Jesus in the middle. So, starting at this first set of three, we have Bartholomew, James, the son of Alphaeus, sometimes he's called James the Lesser, and Andrew. We're going to skip this one right now and go over here. On the other side of Jesus, this is our third set. We have Thomas. Look what Thomas is doing. Holding up a finger. That's our clue to Thomas. We have James the greater with his arms in the air. And then Philip. The final set of three, we have Matthew, Jude, Thaddeus, and Simon. This group of three right here with... definitely some of the most well-known. We have Judas holding a bag of money. We have Peter holding a knife. And then this is the disciple John. Does anything strike you with John? When I first looked at this, I'm like, well, who's the woman? And that's John. And we know John was nicknamed by Jesus himself as one of the sons of thunder. This is not what I think of when I think of someone nicknamed son of thunder. So I doubt he really looked like this, but still fun, still fun to see it. I think I'm going to go with Jesus with my depiction of John more than da Vinci. And I picture a really strong guy that you wouldn't want to mess with. Um, but anyway, these are our 12 disciples. When we look at John, again, the Bible gives us a lot of information on this particular disciple. So all of this that I have for you in red. And for those of you that are new to class um, I should have said this at the beginning because there are a lot of new people. Anything in your notes, if it's written as a connection, this is just an opportunity for you throughout the week or throughout the class to look up some scriptures on your own to start building connections throughout the Word. And everything here, all these scriptural references, give us insight and information on the disciple John. We know again that um, some of his early background, again, one of the 12 disciples. He was the brother of James, most likely James's younger brother, uh, possibly even the youngest of all the disciples together. There's some references there. We know he's the son of Zebedee, and that Zebedee was a fisherman. There's actually some clues in the word, because sometimes I think we say, oh, fisherman was just kind of a, you know, blue collar kind of worker. Well, there's some clues here that Zebedee had quite a fishing operation. So this might have been a family of even some wealth. We know John probably had some kind of clout because he ended up in some places later that he probably wouldn't have been allowed in if he was merely a fisherman. So, again, none of that is spelled out, but some of this is we just take clues of what the Scripture gives us to get a full picture of these people. Um, For his zeal, again, Jesus himself nicknamed him, along with his brother, as Boanerges, which is sons of thunder. And then there's several references here where you can see some evidence of why he earned that nickname. We know that John, along with Peter and James, became part of Jesus's inner circle. And because of that, they were witness to some things none of the other disciples were witness to. They were there at the raising of Jairus's daughter. They were present at the transfiguration present at Gethsemane, um, they were the ones to which Jesus spoke what we term the Olivet Discourse when they asked him, how do we know when you're coming back? And he tells them. That's the Olivet Discourse. It was to these three men. These were three special men. And I think John might even rise to the top of the three because he is referred to over and over and over again as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, he's the one who refers to himself like that. (laughs) But still, (laughs) you either have to have a lot of guts or it's true. Um, So the disciple that Jesus loved. From the cross, we know that Jesus assigned the care of his mother to John not to his earthly brothers, but to the disciple John. Later in life, we know that he was banished to the island of Patmos um, under the emperor Domitian, where he was sentenced to hard labor, most likely because they wanted him to die, but he didn't. And we know he was later released under another emperor and was allowed to go back to Ephesus where he lived out the rest of his life really as a pastor. Um, During his time in exile, he wrote the book of Revelation Um, again when he was returned and went back to Ephesus. um, He was one of the only disciples who faced a natural death. He outlived Peter and Paul by three decades. That's a lot of life that he lived after what we get from these gospels. And during this time, he was really operating as a leader in the church and as a pastor. This is a remarkable man with remarkable pieces of writing um i think we glimpse i put this one verse in here for you in your notes because i think we get a glimpse of his heart remember when he's writing these pieces in the 90s he he is an older man at this time is he still acting like a son of thunder we don't know um But he's got some age to him now. He definitely has some wisdom. And listen to what he says. And we'll really be digging into this in 3 John. But 3 John 1.4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. What a heart of a pastor. That's what brings him his greatest joy. Oh, ladies, that we all be like that. That our greatest joy is knowing others. Others are walking in the truth. What a great thing to be a part of. And John was a part of that. Getting people to know and understand so that they might walk in the truth. So, lastly tonight, we're going to look at John's um, three letters here. And we're only going to do this briefly because, again, we're going to be digging in line by line, verse by verse in all three of the letters. But I just want to give you a general overview so that you can know what's coming So with these three letters, John clearly demonstrates both his love for the church and his concern for the church because of his clear emphasis on the truth. Um, He understood as a pastor the importance of knowing the truth and conveying that importance to the church. Truth is a major theme in both his gospel and all of his epistles. Now, I know we had this chart as well in the Jude study, but I just want to show it to you again because the word truth is mentioned 139 times in Scripture. And that word is used by John more than any other writer by far, by far. When we look at the Gospels, Matthew, it's almost hard for me to think the word's only in there once. One time in the book of Matthew. In Mark, once. In Luke, once. In the Gospel of John, 23 times, And then in the epistles, the word truth isn't in all the epistles, but the ones they are are listed here for you. And again, look at these letters of John, eight times, five times, seven times. And two of these are some of the shortest letters in the New Testament. So can you see his focus on truth? Absolutely. He is wanting to get the church to understand the importance of knowing the truth so that people can walk in the truth. This was a time of great deception during the early church. We'll hear a lot about this in the first letter, but false teachers were everywhere and people didn't have a New Testament to go to. They didn't, this wasn't put together yet. It was being put together through these letters, but they they didn't have that to refer to. So John is saying you have to know the truth. You have to be able to discern good from evil, truth from error. And one of the reasons we're doing the three letters of John now is because if you remember last spring, doing the book of Jude, and if you had to sum that book up in one word what it would be what would it be Apostasy false teachers false teachers infiltrating the church not false teachers telling lies out there we can deal with that false teachers in the church telling lies getting to believe things that aren't true. And John, John is reemphasizing this. You have to know the truth. This is why we spent the summer doing the truth project. Again, understanding the truth in all areas of life. And now we're going to get three letters From this pastor whose focus, again, is on the truth. Ladies, without the truth, we have nothing. We have absolutely nothing. The truth is of prime importance to everything. We can't even know Jesus is who he says he is without the truth. The truth is everything, and John is going to be hitting that hard because the church that he loved was being attacked by then, back then with false doctrine like Gnosticism. And it's being attacked today by false doctrine in a myriad of ways. You can go to a hundred churches on a Sunday morning and you will not hear the gospel you will not hear the true Jesus. You will not hear any truth. You might leave feeling good about yourself, but that's what, not what church is about. Church is about the truth. And this is a man who is hitting the truth hard in these three letters. So, John is writing these letters to help the church recognize and deal with, with some of these issues that we'll be talking about. And though the audience and the content of the three letters is a little different, again, the focus really remains the same. Truth accompanied with love. And, oh, that's a big one. Have you noticed these days that oftentimes those two things are pitted against each other? Oh, well, if you speak the truth, you're not loving. No, that's not true. Oh, if, you know, we have to love everybody. So just, you know, put the doctrine to the side. We really just need to love. That's a lie. These are parts of the false teachings that we're talking about. Truth and love go together. They have to go together. And they go together in these three letters in different ways. So in the first letter of John, here's some of the things we're going to be seeing. In John's first letter, we have a very broad audience. It's written to the church in general, has no personal references at all. No particular person is named. Um, it's written for all Christians and all believers. And it calls for the church as a body to be loyal to the truth. In the midst of false teachings that were being circulated, John sets the record straight on many key issues, like who is Jesus—pretty <laughs> important. What is fellowship? Oh, I know Shani's going to hit that hard because she loves that topic, and it's one I don't think we really have a clear understanding on. Oh. You'll find out what a beautiful thing fellowship is. He he lays that out for us. Um, The assurance of our salvation. I know I saw Donna nodding her head. Can we be assured of our salvation? We absolutely can be. Do you know a lot of believers aren't? You will ask them and they'll say things like, well, I hope so. Well, I hope I'm saved. Yeah, I hope I'm going to heaven. Oh, ladies, we can be sure. John actually, in the first letter, lays out some tests for us. Some are doctrinal. What do you believe? Some are life. How do you live? We're going to see things like there's a big difference between a person who sins and a person who practices sin. Those are two very different things. John makes these things clear to the church so that they can have one of the most beautiful things that comes with salvation, the assurance of it. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in fear of judgment. We don't have to live in fear of hell. We can have assurance of our salvation with Jesus. So these are the kinds of things that he is going to be hitting here. Um, the, again, the epistle contains moral tests and doctrinal tests so that we as believers can test the validity of our faith. That's pretty cool. Do you all ever go through like magazines or whatever and there's those little self-tests and you're like, ooh, I want to take those. I love those. John gives us some. So we'll be able to do this in this first letter. Um, This book is all about the fact that sound doctrine and love is what actually defines a believer. You want to know who a true believer is? Are they doctrinally sound? And do they walk in love? That's how you know. Not just one. I know some people who are quite doctrinally sound, but they're not very loving. And I know some people that love everybody and think that that's wise. And it's not. That's not what the Bible teaches us. We can have both. We should be both. Um, So that will be just a glimpse into 1 John. Second and third John are interesting. They kind of go together as flip sides of a coin. With second John, we're going to see him writing to a much smaller audience. We go from the whole church to a family within the church, a lady and her children. That's who he's writing to. And he is writing to them as a warning of who To accept into their home. To whom do you show hospitality? Now, remember what we just talked about. Many false teachers going around. And where did churches meet at this time? In homes. These letters aren't saying, oh, you can't have an unbeliever over for coffee to talk to them. This is not what this is about. It is, you do not give certain people an audience to say what they want to say. Back then, it was in the home. Today, it is in the church, because we do have church buildings. He he is warning about, watch out for these people. You do not accept them. You do not show them hospitality. Is that being unloving? No, it's protecting the sheep. It's protecting the sheep. So 2 John really focuses on things like discernment in who to listen to and who to believe. Can that be confusing these days? Yeah, there are a lot of people on Christian radio, Christian television, books in the bookstore that you shouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole Just because they say they're Christian does not mean they are. We have to be discerning. And this letter is about being discerning. Who do you need to refuse? And he's telling her this for her protection and the protection of her family, these people that he loves. And then third John we're going to see is the flip side of that. It's also about hospitality, but it's who do you receive? Who do you let in? Who do you listen to? Who do you support? Should we be supporting everyone and everything that says they're Christian? No. Ladies, we need to be discerning. We need to be discerning. Sometimes I hear people say, and I can say this because I've said it myself before, but, well, I'm just going to give, and if it's not right, then the Lord can deal with that and deal with them. John's going to show us some ways in which we can know who do we trust and support and who do we not. It's not our job to support everybody. It's our job to support people who are doctrinally sound, and walking in love. So in this third letter, it is a pastor. He is writing to one particular person. This is the only of the three letters where actual people are named. He gives us three names, Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius. In this letter, we will meet three different gentlemen, and we will learn big lessons From all three. So the audience of the letters go from very broad to very individual. And he is hammering truth and love, truth and love, truth and love. And how do you walk it out in a practical way in your life, in your home, and in your church? So this is the kind of thing that we're going to be seeing from these three letters. So my hope and my prayer, and I do pray for you all, a lot of new people today. Please let's make sure we have everybody's name and email, and we can start a new email list for this particular class. Um, And I do like having everybody's name because because we pray for you by name. We pray for you by name during these classes. Even on my way here, I'm praying for every lady that's been to the other classes who I thought was going to be here. So put your name down. Give us your information so we can be praying for you. And I believe over these next few weeks, we are going to learn a lot together. This class is going to be set up differently than how we've gone before Next week, Shaney is going to start with 1 John. And again, she'll be doing a line-by-line, verse-by-verse study of that first letter. After 1 John, Elizabeth is going to be doing a line-by-line, verse-by-verse of 2 John. And then I'll be back at the end. Well, I'll be here for them, but teaching at the end the third letter of John. So we'll have three different teachers, for three different letters, um, hopefully gaining different perspectives um, in his writing. And again, I think we're going to learn a lot about practical, um, just life application in these letters. Not only John, but all of these epistles, lady, all of the word in general. It is as applicable today as the day as it was written. It is as um, important for our daily lives as it was for the first century audience. So, again, I applaud you all for being here. I know there's so many things you all could be doing on a Wednesday night. And this speaks volumes, that you chose to be here studying God's word instead of other things. And I absolutely believe you will be blessed for that in many ways. So let me close this out in prayer. And then I'll stick around if anybody has any questions. Father God, we come to you again in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Lord, again, we thank you for who you are we thank you for what you've done for us we thank you for jesus going to the cross in our place dying the death we deserve paying the penalty we owed so that we can be in right standing and right relationship with you Thank you that you chose to communicate with us through your word. God, help us to understand it more clearly. I pray for every woman in this class, Lord, for open eyes and open ears and an open heart to understand and receive. Lord, I thank you that as we read your word, you will open our eyes to wonderful things in it that we have not seen before. And may it change us, Lord. That's what your word does. We should be growing more and more in the likeness of you daily. Help us with that. God, we thank you that everything that the gospel said about you is true. We can take it to the bank. You are who you said you are. All these things that you did really happened. Lord, they were witnessed by numerous people. Thank you that you inspired certain of those people to write it down so that we might have it today. Thank you, God, that you chose to live and reside in us. And because we have the Holy Spirit in us, we can do everything that these epistles call us to do. We could not do this on our own, Lord. But we can do it because of the Holy Spirit in us. Thank you for that. God, may we never forget that. Or again, may we never take it for granted. God, put on our memories all week this week, just the beauty and trustworthiness of your word. Remind us of that. Prepare us for next week so that when we begin this first letter, Lord, that we might be changed. We ask all of this in the precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.